1: Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. If you like our podcast, you'll love our online debates. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. George Washington, Andrew Jackson, Ulysses Grant, Abraham Lincoln, four strong leaders, three of them generals, all of them presidents, and all of them get to have their faces on our money. Because we like our leaders strong, but what about the greenbacks that those faces decorate? Do we want those dollars to be strong, too? Of course we do, we normally say. Or is it a goal that is greatly overrated? Well, get ready to get current on currency. Yes or no to this statement. America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S., I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will be arguing for and against this motion. America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. Our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters. On the side arguing for the motion that America does not need a strong dollar policy, let's welcome Frederick Rick Mishkin. and Fred, uh, and we're going to call you Rick, is, your, is how you is like just to go. Fine. Okay, you're a professor at Columbia Business School. You uh, were a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Uh, you used to go around the country giving a talk on the issue of whether a certain amount of inflation falls into a comfort zone. The title of your talk was "Comfort Zones, Schmcomfort Zones." Uh, now, this word, schmumpfert, this is a technical economic term that you. Absolutely. Yeah. We're hoping that all of you will keep it in plain English tonight. Can we count on you for that?
0: Uh, not necessarily. I thought to make this interesting, I'm going to do the debate both in Yiddish. And actually, I was the first person <laughs> to do that uh, in a Federal Reserve speech, but I also used Latin in a speech. So
1: I'll do it in both languages and see how it goes. Thank you. Rick Michigan, ladies and gentlemen. And your partner is John Taylor. Ladies and gentlemen, John Taylor. John, you are also arguing that America does not need a strong dollar policy. Uh, You are chairman and founder of the investment managing company FX Concepts, FX being shorthand for foreign exchange. Uh, You've been watching the markets, currency markets, for over 40 years. From back uh, in a time when, before the euro, there were French francs and German deutschmarks and Greek drachmas, and they were all very pretty, colorful currencies. Do you miss those guys? I sure do. They were fun. Ladies and gentlemen, John Taylor. Our motion is America does not need a strong dollar policy. Now, here arguing against that motion, that means they're arguing for a strong dollar policy. First, let's welcome Steve Forbes. Steve, you're uh, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. Uh, but what thrills all of us up here is that you are the only person on this stage to have once hosted Saturday Night Live. Yes. Is, hey. is, that, is that true? And I, and I think that's an advantage. You, you guys never did that, right, on Don't the opponent so.
0: side? <laughs> But I'm a wild and crazy guy.
1: Okay, <laughs> Steve, uh, you are also the only person on our stage to have run for president of the United States twice. If, if you had won, what would this debate be about tonight?
2: Why the gold standard work and why Rick and John are now in favor of it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Forbes. Your partner is James Grant. You're also arguing against the motion that America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. You're also for a strong dollar. You're editor and founder of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, a financial markets journal. Now, during the 2012 election cycle, Ron Paul dropped your name as a potential chairman of the Federal Reserve. Um, What would have been the outcome of that?
3: Uh, There would be fewer employees at the Fed.
1: Fewer employees at the Fed. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, James Grant. I like that we're seeing a certain economy in the, the words tonight, in the language so far tonight. So let's get on to round one. Our motion is America does not need a strong dollar policy. And here to argue first for the motion, Frederick Rick Mishkin, professor of banking and financial institutions at Columbia Business School and a former member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve.
0: So what I'd like to do first is just to talk about the way that we're going to branch out in terms of my teammate and I. I'm going to focus first on the domestic economy, naturally because of what I do for a living, both in terms of the research I've done and the fact that I was a policymaker at the Federal Reserve. And my teammate, John Taylor, is going to focus on the international ramifications of a strong dollar policy. So let me actually go out and make two points. And the first point is that when we think about what is a good policy, I'm going to say, what is a good policy? for the American economy. And two things that I want to talk about is where are we in terms of our business cycle? Where are we in terms of unemployment? Not very good. We have an unemployment rate of 7.7 percent. And furthermore, we're in a situation where we also have inflation, which is actually too low. Uh, So the inflation right now is actually running in the Fed's uh, preferred measure, 1.2 percent, which is below their target level. Furthermore, The economy is not growing that fast. It's been growing very, very slowly, hasn't really picked up yet. So we're in a situation with a weak economy and actually inflation, which is on the low side. So now let's ask, what would a strong dollar do? Well, a strong dollar would actually mean that the currency would go up in value. That would make American goods and services more expensive. If they're more expensive, people will buy less of them. Foreigners are not going to buy our goods and services the way they did before. What will that do? That will actually end up lowering the demand for our goods and services. As a result, our economy would actually weaken further. Is that what we want? Absolutely not right now, because we'd actually get an economy with higher unemployment and actually inflation, which would be even lower, which has been trending down, it'll go actually down lower. So it's not the right policy at this particular point in time. And so in that sense, I think that it's a very bad policy to think that what we need to do right now is to strengthen the dollar. Point two is a little bit more subtle, and I'm going to be a little more academic here, that I'm actually going to argue that it's a mistake to have any dollar policy, whether a strong one or a weak one. Why? Because what policy should focus on is stabilizing the economy. We should use our tools, both in terms of monetary policy and also fiscal policy, to actually stabilize the economy. At the current juncture, we're in a situation where inflation is on the low side. We're actually in a situation where unemployment is on the high side. So in this case, actually, we would think that we don't want to have a strong dollar. In fact, if our policies are expansionary, they might actually produce a weaker dollar. However, there are other circumstances where, in fact, having tight policy would be the right thing to do. In particular, we'd raise interest rates rather than keep them low. And that would be a situation where we have a lot of inflation. And we've been in periods where, in fact, we've had high inflation, very worried about it. And in that situation, we would want to have tighter policy. That would also result in a stronger dollar, then that would be okay. That would work in the right direction. And indeed in periods where we actually had to go out and control inflation, we actually needed to go to policies that result in a strong dollar. The point here is in a situation where you focus on the dollar, you may very, very well get it wrong. Because that's not the ultimate objective that it should be for policymakers. The ultimate objective for policymakers should be to
1: have a very strong economy. All right thank you Rick Mishkin. Our next debater against the motion, America Doesn't Need a Strong Dollar Policy, ladies and gentlemen, James Grant. He is the editor and founder of Grant's Interest Rate Observer and originator of the current yield column in Barron's. Ladies and gentlemen, James Grant.
3: What a strange proposition we are wrangling over this evening, ladies and gentlemen. A strong dollar, or not-so-strong dollar. The dollar is a unit of measurement. It measures the price of everything and anything. It preserves us from barter. It stores the value of work. Uh, My teammate and I, Steve Forbes, favor a stable dollar, so we oppose the motion. In the same spirit, we support the 12-inch foot, the well-calibrated bathroom scale, and the more than 16-ounce serving of Mountain Dew. (laughs) Now, among the enumerated powers of Congress is that to coin money and regulate the value thereof and of foreign coin and fix the standard weights and measures. Uh, Through most of the nation's history, a dollar was defined under law as a particular weight of gold and silver, more often of gold, specifically of 23.22 grains fine. A little more than $20 was convertible on request into an ounce of gold. By and by, the dollar was redefined anchored as something. Uh, Then came the fateful evening of August 15, 1971, preempting the beloved popular horse opera Bonanza. President Richard Nixon announced that henceforth the dollar would have no definition, no anchor. Henceforth, said Nixon, lashing out against unnamed speculators, they always do, the dollar would be as good as paper. And what has this soft, undependable, malleable, post-1971 pure paper dollar wrought? Well, in 1971, the gross public debt totaled $408 billion, or 38% of GDP. As of yesterday, the gross public debt totaled $16.7 trillion, or more than 100% of projected 2013 GDP. Now, think of the long gray line of plans and resolutions to bring our national finances under control. The institution of the Congressional Budget Office, Graham Rudman Hollings, the Emergency Deficit Control Act of... Reaffirmation Act of 1987, and now, and on and on, and now comes Paul Ryan. Will he be our Messiah? Well, maybe, but I doubt it. As long as the Treasury can borrow at 2%, and as long as the Federal Reserve can conjure hundreds of billions of what they are pleased to call dollars with which to buy up these emissions of debt, the red ink will continue to spill. Alexander Hamilton himself might have succumbed to the temptation. Consuming more than we produce, Americans... We met dollars by the boatload to our Asian creditors who obligingly return them in the shape of investments in American IOUs. It's as if the dollars never left the 50 states. Uh, Sweet it has been, this privilege of America is the privilege of paying its foreign creditors in the currency that only it may lawfully print. But the unprivileged are fighting back. They, too, are cheapening their currencies through the modern techniques of ultra-low interest rates and that cut-glass phrase, quantitative easing. Under the rules of the true blue gold standard, governments tended to balance their budgets and international debtors and creditors tended, in a timely fashion, to square up accounts. I don't have to tell you that no such constraints bind us today. Deficits grow and imbalances pile higher and higher as you would expect them to. In a monetary sense, after all, we are playing tennis without a net. And for that matter, without baselines or sidelines and with imaginary green balls. Well, well... It's an ill wind that blows no one any good. Unanchored exchange rates have created a cottage industry in monetary volatility. John Taylor, from whom you'll hear in a moment, has built a thriving foreign exchange trading business on the ashes of the good-as-gold dollar. The more the currencies dance and swerve, the better it is for Mr. Taylor and his hedge fund, to him as to others in the forex trades. The very idea of monetary stability is its worse than anathema. It's unprofitable. Our post 1971 helter skelter monetary system also favors the prodigious talents of John's sparring partner, and my sparring partner, his partner, Rick Mishkin. The holder of a PhD in economics from MIT, a prolific author and cogent reasoner, Fred ought to be at NASA, if for not his sake, for our sake. <laughs> and, and so should every holder of a PhD in the Federal Reserve Board. Ladies and gentlemen, we've alighted from, from the gold standard over course of decades into something that we should all regret the phd standard
1: thank you jim grant i'm john Donvan, and you're listening to intelligence squared u.s oxford-style debating on america's shores stay with us A reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, fighting it out over this motion. America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. You've heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third, debating in support of the motion that America does not need a strong dollar policy. The chairman and founder of the investment management company FX Concepts and a former vice president at Citibank, ladies and gentlemen, John Taylor.
4: Uh, My cottage uh, business happens to be dealing with the world, and the reality in the world, uh, not like uh, Jim's, which is dealing with the world the way he would like it to be. Um, I would start off by saying that, Jim, your first statement to Rick was that uh, you would be cutting the number of employees at the Fed. Um, I would say that if we follow any of your policies, we'd be cutting the number of employees everywhere. And unfortunately... Unfortunately, yes, the dollar is as good as paper, and every currency in the world is as good as paper. We're not worse. We're not better. But the fact of the matter is is that your dollar that's as good as paper is convertible into anything. You don't have to hold those dollars. Um, Why can the Treasury borrow at 2%? They're not forcing you to lend them at 2%. They're not forcing the Bank of England to invest its money at 2%. They're not enforcing the Chinese to invest their money at 2%, but they do. And therefore, the dollar has a value. Paper or not, it's got a value, and gold is not necessary. And also, the dollar has a very strong impact on the rest of the world. If you're looking at the easy side of this, it's from the U.S.'s point of view. What impact does a strong dollar have? Well, for a start, it has a lot of impact on jobs in Ohio and Michigan and places where we actually produce things in the United States, because the stronger our dollar is, the less likely it is we are to have a manufacturing sector. In 1985, when the U.S. had a strong dollar policy, and, the, and after a while, a stated strong dollar policy under Ronald Reagan and Volcker, um, we began to develop something that we now called, and it came into practice then, the Rust Belt. And the reason that was the Rust Belt is all of a sudden we couldn't produce anything that could compete with the rest of the world because the dollar was too damn strong. Um, So now we all drive Mercedes and Toyotas and whatever. We do not drive things that come out of Michigan. I know I'm going to get defeated on this. So Toyotas are all made in the United States. Hondas are made in the United States. Yeah, in Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama. There are reasons for that. The weak dollar today has brought these... European and Japanese companies into the United States, even Korean. And if we had a strong dollar, they would go, too. So I mean, the dollar is very, very important domestically for us. And and basically, if you have a strong dollar, you end up with a situation where the rich get richer uh, and there aren't a hell of a lot of jobs. How does the world do with the dollar? A strong dollar is bad for the world as well. That's kind of perverse, because if you would argue that, oh, gee whiz, if you've got a strong dollar, then anybody can sell anything to us. But overseas, um, it's a little difficult to understand. But if the dollar is declining, then it's very inexpensive to build a plant because a weak dollar, uh, which is the global currency, because the dollar has been out there for years, a weak dollar is the thing that you finance your trade in. And if you know the dollar is going to be weaker In a year or two or three, you don't repay it. So it's a gift. So when the dollar is weak, people borrow money from Citibank, from J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, the people doing these deals, and our banking system does very well. When the dollar is strong, all of a sudden, these people are, oh, my God, I now owe more for this loan, and my plant that I built in Thailand isn't as successful as I thought, and so I have to close it down, I have to lay off workers. So when the dollar gets strong, all of a sudden the rest of the world economies go down.
1: John Taylor, I'm sorry, world, your, your time is up. Thank, thank you very you. much, John Taylor. Our motion is America doesn't need a strong dollar policy and here to argue against the motion. Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media and the author of Freedom Manifesto, Why Free Markets Are Moral and Big Government Isn't. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: So let's lead. What is money? Money makes it easier to buy and sell with one another, to do transactions with each other. It is through buying and selling that wealth is ultimately created. Before we had money in the old days, we had barter. If we had barter today, imagine what it would be like trying to deposit a cow into an ATM uh, or take out a pig from an ATM. So we, we, we have money and money is like anything fixed weight and measure, it has a fixed value, it becomes extremely useful. We have, when you go to the supermarket, say buy a pound of hamburger, you assume it has 16 ounces, 12 inches in a foot. That doesn't float. Imagine building a house 3000 square feet if the ruler floats each day. Let's say you're baking a cake. It says bake the batter 45 minutes. You have to figure out, is that an inflation adjusted minute? So, so, so a, weak do- a weak dollar, unstable dollar, makes commerce harder, and it has very destructive impacts. First of all, it misdirects investment. Without investment, we don't get a higher standard of living. A weak dollar is like a virus in a computer, corrupts the information. When the dollar becomes weak, what happens to the flow of investment money? It becomes defensive. It goes into commodities. Try to preserve what you have instead of invest to grow in the future. You saw it in the 1970s. Three-dollar oil went to forty dollars a barrel when Reagan and Volcker stabilized the dollar. In the 80s, it crashed down to ten, stabilized to 20, and now look what it's today: 80, 90 dollars. You saw it with the housing. We had an artificial housing boom in the late 70s. Even worse one this time. The housing bubble could not have happened without a weak dollar. So you get financial bubbles. Another thing that happens is when you have a weak currency, real wages go down which is why the medium income in this country has gone nowhere for 10 years. So when the dollar goes down in value, you pay more for food, you pay more for gas, you pay more for electricity, which means money, less money for other things. And so workers do better in terms of improving their standard of living. People do better when they're in countries where the currency is stable, and they do worse in countries over time that have weak currencies. It also harms our security. Weak money, as I mentioned, has an artificial boost to commodity prices, particularly oil. That means vast transfers of wealth to commodity producers and the like, and also vast transfers, literally trillions of dollars, to countries unfriendly to the U.S., like Iran, Venezuela, and Russia. Weak dollar also has a moral dimension. It undermines social trust. It severs or certainly weakens the link between effort and reward. Wealth and progress is achieved less by hard work, by gaining new skills, perhaps starting a new business, and more by speculation and gambling. Weak dollar means windfall gains, as I mentioned, for commodities and for exotic financial instruments and hurts small businesses and many startups. Faith in the future is undermined. What we see happening today, this feeling that something is not right, this feeling that speculation, doing exotic financial instruments, greedy oil companies and the like, is the way to get ahead instead of hard work, it all relates to a weak and unstable currency. So bottom line is, wages suffer, investment gets skewed, we don't have a higher standard of living that we would have had, and it weakens social trust. Thank you. Thank you,
1: Steve Forbes. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now on to round two, where the debaters address each other directly and also answer questions from me and from you in the audience. Our motion is America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. Arguing in support of that motion, in other words, arguing against a strong dollar policy, we have Fred Mishkin and John Taylor. They have told us that you need a dollar that matches the economic times that you're in, and sometimes like the present, they say a strong dollar actually hurts. It hurts exports, and that hurts jobs. They say that history has shown up before that a strong dollar is no guarantee of prosperity and that government needs flexibility to work fiscal and economic policy. The team arguing against the motion, and that means they're arguing for a strong dollar, James Grant and Steve Forbes are, are arguing, uh, yes, we do need a strong dollar, that it's a, a strong dollar is one that is fixed, that money was invented to represent and hold value so that business could be done. When that doesn't happen, the meaning of money begins to slip out of sight. They said specifically workers do better when the economy is stable, and worse when it's not? I want to put that question to their opponent, to Rick Mishkin. You're arguing that America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. Steve Forbes is saying workers do better with a strong dollar policy. Can you respond to that directly? So and then I want Steve to Workers to do to that better
0: story. when there is low and stable inflation. That we agree on. Uh, And, in fact, low and stable inflation means that it's not fluctuating a lot. So what is
1: he saying that's different from what you believe?
0: Because what he's saying that's different is that he wants a fixed value of the currency, the dollar, in terms of a commodity, let's say gold. And that actually is not a situation where it produces stability in the price level. During the gold standard, the price level went up, went down. Now, you are right that over very long horizons, over a 40-year period, there was no change in the price level. That's the good news. The bad news is that our horizons are not 40 years. As Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead.
1: All right, Steve Forbes, back to your point. Bring us some examples or make the case in specific terms about a stable currency being good for workers.
2: Well, uh, again, uh, what prices do should be determined by a free market. We've had a huge fall in the price of memory. You take an iPod today. Memory costs, what, $40, $50? Ten years ago, it would cost $10,000. Again, the money should be stable in value. The United States, from the time we went on the gold standard in 1789, uh, right through some on and offs through 71, had one of the most extraordinary growth periods in human history. We surpassed our neighbors in Latin America. We surpassed Europe in terms of uh, growth, which is why we attracted more immigrants than any other country in the world. And One of the key things that Hamilton and Washington brought in was realizing if you fool around with the money, what that does is hurts commerce. People hold physical assets instead of going out and doing and uh, investing in the future. You know when you invest something, john that 's risky, but it 's even riskier, and you 're less likely to do it if you don 't know what you 're going to get paid back in. Is it going to be a hundred cent dollar, an eighty cent dollar, a twenty cent dollar?
1: get less of that productive investment. Okay, Look, so, so you're broadly saying, in terms of the workers' question, that stability is good for workers because they're factories and they're working in their jobs. and they- Well, you get an environment where people invest and uh, yeah. things, things get done. You get John real Taylor, growth. Your
4: now, I don't think Steve answered the question at all about workers' salaries and how well they're doing. Well, workers' uh,
2: salaries under the gold standard went up. You take any period of time, they went up in real terms, which is why our wages in real terms were the highest in the world.
4: I wonder about Dickens and
2: some of the stories of that period. He was an Englishman but, the last I looked. Uh, but I, just, I just wonder. John the, Teller.
4: The fact is, is that the example that, uh, that, uh, that Jim gave, where the Asians were beginning to develop products at cheaper prices and all this kind of stuff, implied a decline in U.S. wages, absolutely positively, unless the U.S. government was pushing to keep uh, the wage levels of, of U.S. workers up. And so I believe that, in fact, the movement to a weak dollar had a lot to do with the fact that we had a growth in Asia coming and product was coming in much cheaper and basically undercutting well, not only Detroit but California. And if you look at uh, apples or whatever, then none of them are made, made in the United States,
1: right? All right. So, I, so the, John's po- John was making the point, and you made the point a couple of times, that uh, a weaker dollar boosts exports. We all see the logic of that argument. And I'm assuming you see the logic of the argument. But what's the flaw in the argument, Jim Grant?
3: With a cheaper currency, you pay more for what you buy and you earn less from what you sell. Now, tell me what the advantages of a cheap currency.
2: Yeah, uh, look, look, look at the price of gasoline. $1.25 in the late 90s, what is it, 3 dollars 4 $5 dollars today? How does that help a family? How does Rick, that increase so, their Rick, wages? I want to change the,
0: the, this issue a little bit. The, well, no, actually, no, 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 I, I like related. their question. No, no, <laughs> I want to deal with the, I want to deal with the okay. question in the following sense, which is that what goes on in the real economy is actually much less associated with what goes on in terms of the, the inflation than, in fact, you're attributing to. So what we really need to focus on is a narrow issue that, that does a strong dollar actually help the economy? Does it hurt it? I think that's very important, but not, let's, let's not get into this view that, uh, that having a, a, a strong dollar or gold standard or weak dollar actually solves all of our problems. It actually solves very little of the problems. It's still important.
3: The gold standard, I mean, the, the idea that, uh, that our fiscal affairs after 1971, when the dollar lost this anchor, what remained of the anchor, the idea that our fiscal affairs were not affected... Um, it's not as if we are uh, improvident in a way our forebears were not. They had strictures. They had a system within which they had to run their affairs. They had to balance the budget. That was the the norm of the monetary regime then ruling. The norm of monetary regimes the world over today is is debt.
1: John Taylor.
4: You know, I, th- I think that there's, there's an argument being made here that what happened in the 70s is what's happening today. And, and there's an argument being made also that uh, that we cannot manage ourselves, our, our money, without having some Procrustean bed that we're forced into. I don't agree with that at all. I think that's really our point, uh, is that you have to be flexible. The dollar has periods where it needs to be strong. I, Paul Volcker is one of my heroes. He did everything right when he came in, uh, and I was there for the Saturday Night Massacre, and I did not have a good time, but it was the right thing to do when he all of a sudden changed the way that the Fed uh, managed money and the interest rates shot up by 4% over the weekend. That was a very, very good shock for the U.S. government, and it was a brilliant stroke.
1: Steve Forbes, but- your, your opponent, John Taylor, has just used the word flexibility, and that is, that's a key theme for them, that the government needs to have the flexibility to, to, to move the dollar as it can, depending on economic, economic circumstances. It's a tool. What about that argument?
2: It's like saying if you change the measuring rod, that'll increase prosperity. What it does is reduce, brings in a factor of instability. So you don't know what you're going to get paid back in. You suppress people's wages. What country has outpaced, in terms of a standard of living, with a weak currency, chronically weak currency, than those that have had traditionally strong
1: currencies. Rick Michigan, right. so, Steve, Steve so, Forbes just said, why is that a good thing, being able to have that tool? Why, you so, know, take 30 seconds and answer that. First them. of all, I
2: wouldn't want to say that
0: the dollar, the value of the dollar should be the tool we're using. What I mean by this is that, that one technology is actually to tie the dollar to gold. That's a technology. Another kind of technology that you can use is, in fact, what central banks have been adopting and actually very successfully in terms of something called inflation targeting. So that uh, they have actually adopted a policy of saying we're trying to keep inflation stable. In the last Rick. 10, 15 years, they've been very successful at doing that. They have not solved other problems like financial stability, but there are reasons why that has to be a concern of a separate nature.
1: Jim Rick. Grant.
0: Rick. sorry <laughs> that I got you so upset. Can talk, your, talk, can
1: talk. Your, if, your, if only the radio audience wait. could see your face, Jim. But,
0: and <laughs> and is, your, is your bow tie going to unravel? That's the question that I want to ask. <laughs>
1: Or spin. That would be a good effect.
3: <laughs> inflation is a defined term. Um, I think it is worth noting that the inflation of house prices, uh, which went unremarked uh, by our financial scholars the, at the Federal Reserve, the inflation in house prices almost brought this country, financially speaking, down. The CPI, or the, whatever the, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, was, was fine. Uh, unbeknownst to... Um, the Fed, and the hundreds of monetary scholars on the payroll, there was building up in the economy, something that models didn't even look at, which is, which is a huge buildup of, of unsupportable debt, of mortgage debt in the banking system and outside the banking system. So inflation is a, very, a much subtler term the Fed knows or acknowledges to this day, and they can't control it. It's like a, it's like a bubble underwater. They squeeze one part and another part of the bottle, uh, bubble protrudes.
0: Rick Again, the issue is you're right that bubbles can be very disastrous, particularly ones that involve credit markets, and we've just gone through a terrible period this way. But, in fact, this has been happening through history and, in fact, has been happening frequently when we've had gold standards and also when we didn't. Indeed, one of the views in terms of research is that, that actually having a stable period may actually encourage a bubble because people don't think there's enough risk. So I can't see how we're going to solve the problems here of bubbles by actually being in a situation where we actually tie to some kind of commodity. But you, you have, it seems to me you have to distinguish between uh,
3: banking arrangements and monetary arrangements. We ought not to be surprised when, in a system in which the capitalists get the upside in the banking business, and we the people suffer the downside when their bets go wrong, we ought not to be surprised that these bankers take exceptional risks. We are living in what the military people call an asymmetric world. To the upside goes Greenwich, Connecticut. To the downside goes Dayton.
1: I'm John Dondack, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, America does not need a strong dollar. I'm John Donback, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The topic up for debate, does America need a strong dollar? I want to go to audience questions now. So if you raise your hand, a mic will come to you. Please stand up. Right down in the frontier.
4: Hi, uh, Vicki Schmelzer, Market News International. What effect does strong dollar policy have on the status of the dollar as the world's reserve, world's premier currency?
1: I'm glad you asked that question. Steve Forbes, you look like you're thinking like the wheels are turning. Yeah. Um,
2: the, the, the dollar became the so-called reserve currency because thanks to the stable dollar, people wanted to use it around the world. We're the largest economy in the world. Uh, before us, you had the British pound, good as gold until uh, the First World War. So that was the reserve currency. Is it the entirely desirable? Steve, is it no. entirely
1: desirable to be the reserve it's currency? It's entirely
2: desirable to have a stable currency and high growth rates, absolutely.
1: Other side, side arguing um, that America why does not the, need a strong dollar. did the policy. dollar
4: become the world reserve currency? It was the only currency left standing in 1945. Period. There was nothing else. We gave our money to everybody. We were also really the only country
0: left standing. Uh, that uh, At that point, we right. had over 50% of the manufacturing c- capacity
4: in the world. Right. And the net effect of that is that the dollar went out there and went all around the world. And the world is path dependent, i.e. history makes the future. And because the dollar is so dominant, it's just there.
1: Is this issue of its being a reserve currency, I think this is part of the sense of the question, related to its strength or weakness or no. its stability or its flexibility. No. Why not?
4: I don't think uh, I mean, we would have to completely collapse. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that everybody is investing in these 2 percent dollars, even though Jim says we're forced to invest, and the U.S. government is writing it. Nobody forces the Chinese to buy U.S. debt at 2 percent. They question. do,
2: though. Sir? Uh, so, Mr. Forbes and Mr. Grant, the que- you've asserted that the gold standard creates stability inherently, but we've seen numerous asset bubbles throughout the gold standard periods, including, you know, the South Sea bubble in the, in the United Kingdom, the Dutch tulip bubble, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What prevents, in your opinion, the gold standard from creating or having more bubbles
1: in that period as well?
3: What, to me, characterizes the gold standard period is the, is the absence of growth, uh, throttling, long-dated depressions owing to uncertainty about the future value of money. Such depressions as existed in that period were typically the result of uncertainty about monetary affairs, such as the one that started in 1893, such as the Depression of 1890. But uh, banking bubbles, it seems to me, were were much less severe uh, for the simple reason that, uh, that bankers at the time were personally accountable in some degree. Certainly bank stockholders were personally accountable for the solvency of the institutions in which they invested. There was a double liability Rick I,
1: So, I mean, really what they're saying is it would have been worse. Right. They're not but saying it was how, great, but it would have been worse. But how can
0: you say that the gold standard prevents this? The Great Depression... Was a period where we were actually—it was the not gold standard. on the
3: gold standard. That was the—that was the third-rate variant on the gold exchange standard that happened after 1922 in Genoa. That's not the, the gold you, standard. How do you define John that? The gold standard. That the it's cla- third
4: rate. I'm sorry. What's second rate? <laughs> <laughs>
3: right. Second um, rate. Second rate is Bretton Woods. Third rate is uh, 1920s and 30s. But the gold exchange standard was characterized by the build-up of reserve currency balances in other. Nations such as the bridge build-up in France and elsewhere.
1: We are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion: America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. More questions from the audience, sir. John Feingold. In light of trying to figure out the winner of tonight's debate, what measures should future historians look at and determine who won? Is it the price of gold? or is it the volatility, or is it yet still another measure?
4: Uh, So I would measure this in social welfare. I look at the gold standard, and I'm sorry, I don't think Dickens is an outlier. Uh, There were plenty of American Dickens in the equivalent, and a lot of our families lived those lives. I think that the point is, is that is the future, which is what we're leading, living now, more successful than the past, than what the gold standard was. And I can't, I'd like to be a great social scientist and say I'm going to run a, a test here, but I can't run the test with a gold standard.
1: Other side.
3: You know, there is implicit in um, our opponent's line of argument the idea that uh, monetary thought runs in a line of progress from ancient times to the present, and we are now at the pinnacle of monetary technique and knowledge. I submit to you that uh, posterity, looking back on this moment in monetary affairs, will look upon the doings of the world's central banks that have, as I say, elided into a kind of a, a makeshift central planning from what is meant to be a very simple act of central banking. They will look upon this as a period of, of kind of the dark ages of monetary application and thought.
1: We'll take a few more questions. You're in the blue shirt, yeah.
0: Um, Robin Blumenthal from Barron's. Thank you. Given the fact that we have a much more interdependent economy with a lot more participants in the, third war, in the developing nations, et cetera, and, and lots of talk recently about currency wars. Could the panelists please address you know, the question of how uh, having a, a fixed rate of currency would affect the rest of the world?
1: Uh, Steve Forbes?
2: Uh, most countries would prefer stable currencies because it makes trade that much easier and uh, capital flows that much easier, which is why in Africa you have 14 nations that are attached to the euro. 13 nations have uh, currency boards where they attach to a currency. So uh, among our trading partners, they find it very disruptive when the dollar goes all over the place and their currencies wobble up and down. So uh, in terms of uh, stability, Yes, uh, it would be good for developing countries because it would facilitate trade and facilitate the flow of capital. You never get ahead by fooling around with your money any more than you would changing feet in a mile.
1: <laughs> Steve, what did you mean earlier? What did you mean earlier when you said that a weak dollar breaks a sacred trust, and that was the moral issue that you brought up? Yes,
2: because it, it, it undermines uh, social trust. We depend on trust. And when you do transactions, you trust that uh, you get in return what you've been promised and you'll give what you uh, promised. And with an unstable currency, what it does is undermine hard work and productive effort and give undue rewards to speculation, undue rewards to commodities. That's why oil has gone from 21 to $90 or $100 a barrel. Uh, That's why you saw this speculation, mad speculation in housing. So it misdirects investment. We saw that in the 70s. Huge investment in farmland and commodities. They crashed in the 80s. Uh, Those investments had to be liquidated. A lot of wasted capital. Stability. Again, it's just a measure of value. I, want to, uh, hear, uh, to respond I also to that want issue. the
0: dollar to be Rick, a good measure Rick of value, but this is an issue about having low and stable inflation. It's not time to gold. Inflation
2: means you're debasing the, the, reducing the value to of the do money. With the value of the dollar. It has to do with
4: inflation. The people sitting around this room spend 99 point something or other percent of their dollars in the U.S. economy. It doesn't really matter whether the euro goes up or down 1 percent in one day or the next. What it matters is, is that the inflation that impacts everything that we consume on a daily basis that impacts our pay is stable. Is, and that, that's do, the case is there so any merit to
1: Steve's moral argument, which is essentially saying that people make a deal that when they get a dollar and they put it in the bank in 10 years, it's still going to be worth what it was when they earned it? Is there a moral argument to well, that? Is there a social trust that's broken? The
0: social trust in not having a situation of having very high inflation, and we agree on that. The question is, what is the best... I use the word technology, but the best way of getting that to happen. And my view on this is that, in fact, we do not get the stability that Steve would like to see us have. Rick, you Fun are proposing,
3: you're proposing that the current regime of literally unprecedented central bank activism is one for the ages. This, we, must, we must step back a second and realize what's going on in the world. Central banks are conjuring hundreds of billions of dollars a year from nowhere on the theory, mind you, on the theory – Uh, that by so doing, uh, they will enhance what is universally a lousy state of trade. This This is unprecedented.
1: And on that note, I have to announce that this concludes round two of this Intelligence Square debate, where our motion is, America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. On to round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. Our motion is, America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. And here, to summarize his position against the motion, James Grant, editor and founder of Grant's Interest Rate Observer.
3: You know, Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote a wonderful series of books entitled Little House on the Prairie, and one of these books was uh, uh, the biography of her uh, future husband called Farmer Boy. It was about the life of a hard-scrapple dairy farmer and his family in upstate New York. And, And one day, the farmer took his son to the fair and uh, lemonade was on sale and the kid screwed up his courage and asked for a nickel to buy a round of lemonade for his friends and the uh, father astonishingly produced from his jeans a 50 cent piece and the father asked him not wanting to let a moment go by without instruction ask if he knew what that was and the kid of course said nothing how could he, he say was, he was literally struck dumb uh, so he asked the son "Son, you know what money is? again silence and the father says Money is work. And uh, money is the stored value of work. This is the moral question. So you work all day, and you earn something for it, and that's something that's called money, and you save some of that uh, because there are only so many heartbeats in a lifetime, it's precious to save some of it for later. Now, what our opponents would, you like, you to be- would like you to believe is that through the most dexterous use of advanced mathematics, they can calibrate the rate of depreciation in that money so that you will only, won't will even notice it. But Steve and I are here to tell you that you will notice it. And we are also here to tell you that uh, the ways of higher mathematics are not the ways towards price stability. Vote against this proposition.
1: Thank you. James Grant. And our motion is America does not need a strong dollar policy. And here to make that argument and sum up his position, John Taylor, chairman and founder of FX Concepts.
4: If stability is the goal of government, then it must lean against the wind. If the economy is growing too fast, it must act to slow the economy. And if the economy is growing too slowly, it must act to speed it up. That is the policy that the government has been following for at least since World War II. That policy, at least according to Jan Tinbergen, who did win the Nobel Prize in economics, the first one given in 1953, said that there were four independent variables that drove uh, the government's ability to control the economy and the economic outputs that are important to the people who live there. Those policies were money growth interest rate levels, fiscal policy, i.e. the level of taxing and the level of spending, um, and the currency value. Currency value was one of the four instruments that was chosen to manage uh, the government output. One of the leading economists of the world recognized that even under that time that currency movement was critical uh, to keeping the world moving forward. So my argument is that We should have a flexible policy that allows us to lean into the wind or lean against it, depending on which way we need the government to act. And so, therefore, we need that flexibility, and we're against a
1: strong dollar policy. Thank you, John Taylor. Our motion is America does not need a strong dollar policy, and here to argue against the motion, meaning he is for a strong dollar policy, Steve Forbes, Chairman and Editor-in-Chief of Forbes Media. Thank you. Thank you. Keynes was right about
2: over time when you weaken a currency, you do undermine the social order. What the Federal Reserve is doing is the equivalent of what you might call the Federal Reserve diet. How about raising the number of ounces in a pound from 16 to 20? Your weight goes down 20%. If you weigh 200 pounds, suddenly you're 160 pounds. If you weigh 150, suddenly you weigh 120. This way, obesity goes away. This way, you can eat more weigh less and look thinner. Well, put that way, it is absolutely ridiculous, thinking if you change a measure of something that therefore you can achieve a desired result. Inflation is the equivalent of changing the number of ounces in a pound or changing how a mirror makes you look. It is distortive, ridiculous, and destructive. Dollar should be a fixed measure of value just simply a yardstick to make transactions easier. Otherwise, you get a decline in personal incomes weakening social trust, distortion and misdirection of investment into things that are hard assets instead of the things of the future, and also as a transfer of wealth to nations that are not very friendly to the United States. Whatever anger you look at, again, you're not going to make yourself wealthy by fooling around with the integrity
1: of the U.S. dollar. Thank you. Thank you, Steve Forbes. Our motion is America doesn't need a strong dollar policy, and here to summarize his position in support of the motion. He does not think America needs a strong dollar policy. Frederick Mishkin, he's professor of banking and financial institutions at Columbia Business School.
0: So I'm not going to use higher mathematics. In fact, that's never been really part of this discussion. But I do want to talk about history. And, in fact, there's a, a very wonderful example about what happens when you pursue a strong currency policy. It happened to deal with a great man who was great in helping save the world against Hitler but was not a very good economist. He was a, not a very good a Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is the equivalent of the Finance uh, Minister or Treasury, uh, Secretary of the Treasury. And this was Winston Churchill. But what the UK decided to do after World War I was to pursue a strong pound pound policy. They went back on the gold standard uh, in 1925, they started uh, taking measures to do this starting in the, right after the war. What was the result of this? Well, in order to do this, they actually had to have very tight monetary policy, very high interest rates. What was the outcome? The outcome was that we had ex- the, the British had extremely high unemployment. They went to over 11% unemployment in 1921. They then had extremely high unemployment all through the Roaring Twenties when everybody else was doing wonderfully. But then even, even more important to the current situation... They actually were trying to be virtuous. They had 130% of of debt, sovereign debt, of their their government debt relative to GDP after World War I because it was so costly to fight it. What happened to them? Well, they went from 140% of GDP in uh, 1919. By the time you got to 1929, they were 170% of GDP. This ended up doing several things. It meant it killed the economy. They actually had deflation. And what did you end up with? you ended up with a much more dire fiscal situation, even when there was virtue. A strong dollar policy would be something that would be very damaging to the economy, and we do not need a strong dollar policy.
1: Thank you, Rick Mishkin. And that concludes closing statements and the final round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it is time to learn which side you feel argued best. I, first of all, want to say that uh, the spirit and the energy and the entertainment value, frankly, of this rather uh, potentially technical and arcane debate was terrific. It was a lot of fun, and you made it really interesting. Thank you for all of that. Here are the final results. We had you vote twice, both before you heard the debate and once again after you heard the arguments. And the team whose numbers have moved the most is declared our winner. So the motion... Is America doesn't need a strong dollar policy? Here is the preliminary vote. Before the debate, 24% agreed with the motion, 29% were against, and 47% were, un- were, d- were divided. What did I do wrong? It's just an amazing number. Oh, okay. <laughs> Felt like my kids were laughing at me, and I'm wondering what did I do wrong. So those are the first results. Remember now that you have voted a second time. The winner is the team has changed your numbers the most from the first vote to the second. So we're going to look at the second vote on America doesn't need a strong dollar policy. The team arguing for the motion. Their second vote, they got 54%. From 24% to 54%, that's an increase of 30 percentage points. That is the number to beat. So let's see the team against. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, here's yeah. where we need higher
0: mathematics.
1: Right team against 29% before, they went to 37%. That's only 8 percentage points they pulled over. It's not enough. The debate goes to the other side. The team arguing against a strong dollar policy has prevailed. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared U.S. is supported by the Rosenkranz Foundation and distributed by NPR.